and sometimes why. Why? Hey, everybody. It's me, Rob. You're listening to And Sometimes Why. I'm Rob Zabo, your host. What we do here is we have conversations hoping to uncover deeper truths about ourselves and each other. Hopefully you can relate to some of these conversations that I've been having with all these great people. And this episode is no exception. Our guest today is Todd Donald, who edits this very podcast. He edits the conversations and he's a podcast pioneer, man. He's been doing podcasts in one shape or another since 2008. And we'll get into all that soon. But before we do that, I just want to share with you guys some good news. People are listening to this podcast. Can you believe it? We're almost at a thousand downloads already. And I'm not one of these guys that's super focused on numbers, but I just had no idea what to expect. And so about 150, 175 people are listening to every episode. And I'm just trying to picture all those people together in a room, right? So I'm a musician, so I know what rooms hold. So I can picture like the Rivoli in Toronto. That's about 150, 175. Or Rhapsody in Kitchener-Waterloo. That's about that number. So what I'm picturing is... Is, of course, you all are not all in one place, but I'm picturing, you know, a, a woman on her treadmill with her headphones on, working out, listening. Then I picture a guy in his suit in his car on his morning commute, you know, he's got it on the car hi-fi. I picture another woman on the subway in the evening in rush hour. She's got those big, cool headphones on. She's completely surrounded by people, but she's in her own little world, eavesdropping on these conversations. I picture a dude pushing his kid on a stroller. He's like, half running, listening, doing stuff with the kid, making sure the kid's okay. You know, he's got one of those windshields so the kid doesn't get cold. I picture another woman in her kitchen. It's nighttime. She's listening on one of those Google things. She's making herself dinner. She's having a glass of wine. Anyway, thank you to all of you, however you're listening. It's It feels great to have this community already gathered around. And it might seem like it's disconnected, but it doesn't feel to me that way. I mean, that's why I got into this, because I felt so connected eavesdropping on all these conversations I was eavesdropping on in the podcast I was listening to. And I really did feel connected to those conversations and those people's lives. And I felt like I learned so much and I continue to feel like that. So Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be part of this. So now that I've thanked you, can I ask for a favor? Is that how it works? That's how, that's how you lead up to a favor, right? Can you tell a friend if you dig this podcast? Just mention it to them. Tell them to search Rob Zabo on whatever their podcast app is, and that's how you find And Sometimes Why. It's easier to search Rob Zabo than And Sometimes Why, because then you just get a bunch of stuff with the word why in it. And if you use Spotify, here's another thing you can do to share the pod. So when you're listening to the podcast from the episode you're listening to on the top right, there's three little buttons stacked vertically. They're not buttons. It's like three little dots. So you hit that and you get a bunch of options. One of them is share. So you can share that directly to your Instagram or Facebook feed. I feel funny explaining to people how to use their phones, but I mean, we're not all phone ninjas. So now that I've said all that, let's get to the reason we're all here, the reason I'm here, which is the conversation. On today's show, we have kind of a behind the scenes look at how this thing gets made. 
We've got Todd Donald, who I mentioned earlier. He's the guy who edits all the conversations. So I have conversations with people either in the room together or remotely on Skype or whatever. And then I send him the raw files and he sends me back this beautiful conversation that he edits just so, you know, we don't get way off in the weeds. I I don't envy him. Some of the conversations, like I've mentioned before, have been two and a half hours long and he edits them down to 50 minutes or whatever. And that to me is too daunting. I can't cut stuff out because I just love everything. I love the process so much. So I'm not well suited to do the editing. So I can't thank him enough. Like I said earlier, he's a podcast pioneer. I mean, this guy's been doing it in one form or another since 2008. That was way before podcasts were a thing. That was before Mark Marin's show. I mean, Marin started in 2009, and he's supposed to be the pod father, right? Todd was doing it before him. So we talk about that. We talk about his life in music. We play some of his songs, and we talk about Elvis Costello. Because when he got here, the first thing he did was pick up my guitar and start playing me deep-cut Elvis Costello songs and blowing my mind, and it was fantastic. So... Here is my conversation with Todd Donald. Thinking what comes and goes seems to always show what we can and what we never do. Todd, thank you so much for coming and doing this. I'm so excited to have you here and give people a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at how this podcast is made. Right. But before we get to that, you just schooled me on Elvis Costello, and I'm so excited to get into his back catalog. He was always somebody who I really loved, yeah. but I never dug deeply into. And you're you're into it, and you just got me really excited. <laughs> I'm glad that what, what I did in front of you with the guitar, uh, clearly it was, but that it was more than enough to sell you on them. Yeah, yeah. But like I was saying, I mean, I always loved yeah, yeah. The, his hits or the songs that you can't avoid in your life. And, I, you know, he's he's one of the icons and he's so sophisticated musically. But mm-hmm. like I said, I just for whatever reason never really dug into his back catalog. And you're playing me all these deep cuts that yeah. really got me excited. So you're you, he's one of your, your go-to. All-time favorites. And like this is after what people would associate with my music as being influenced by it. Like, this is this is just after I'd finished recording the two albums I would ever put out and people would know me for. Those were all informed by years of listening to the Wilburys and the Beatles, as we were talking about. And as right, you, right. you can hear it clearly that there's this strong Beatles influence. And then I fell in love with Elvis Costello. He was my new Jesus musically, right? <laughs> Since then, few have stepped into the... That spotlight for me. Peter Gabriel, maybe. But I can't reproduce his shit on right. acoustic guitar. Um, All this is that accessible, you can learn the songs on guitar. And well, just, there's a lot going on. There's a there lot is. of chords that go by. It's it's sophisticated. I mean, that's one of the things we were we were talking about as as you were playing me the songs, is I was thinking, why why is this kind of musical sophistication fallen out of fashion? It seems like Things are getting more and more simplistic musically, and I, I wonder about that culturally, right? Is that any something you've thought about at any point, being a big fan of that kind of music? Yeah, and every time I come back to it, I remind myself not to be cynical. And I, there were points in my life where, like, like I took pride in being cynical, and it was just a phase in high school, and I, and I, I look back embarrassed at that person. So it's just that stingy 
reminder of don't be cynical about things. Right. I, I know what you mean. I'm I'm the same. I have the same bent. And it's hard because things aren't perfect. The, the world is harsh. It's hard not to look at things with, you know, protective thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's all bad, though. I mean, I think it's good to be skeptical. Right. And to, to have a critical mind. But uh, yeah, it's, I, I certainly have to watch myself to not let that be the predominant feeling right. or lens through which I look at everything. So one... Th- one place I landed on was there's no such thing as bad music. If we're all just trying to make it through this thing called existence and a song with absolutely no range, dynamic, creative prowess can make someone smile, it's a, it's a good song. I'm, I might think it sucks if I was to evaluate it, mm-hmm. but I can't hate that it exists. Sure. Because, I... But at the same time, I wonder if... And this, this, this is what I'm getting to, getting to the goddamn point, is that... <laughs> The motivators for ma- the making of music and the writing of music, and with nowadays so many more people than I ever thought before, like going for it, you know, what do you truly want more? Money, v- your vanity, or to communicate with other human beings in a way that's profound? And if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that it's money and vanity that's driving this simplification of art is that what you're saying i forgot one pussy but yeah pretty much that's <laughs> uh, but i mean that's always driven i mean you True. know male the male ego and patriarchy running most of the things for the last however many millennia that's yeah. that's you know once you're housed and fed the next thing is procreation right so and you got to fluff your feathers to get that to happen True. so that's that's what men have been doing for I mean, both both sexes do it obviously but uh yeah in doing research for this interview i wanted to ask you i listened to a bunch of music that you made and i was i was reminded of how sophisticated it is and now that we're talking about this i'm thinking like you know really intense backup vocal arrangements yeah. harmonically really dense and sophisticated. I'm thinking, what was the root of that? And so now I'm hearing Elvis Costello, but that was after you made that music, if if I heard you right. I wrote those songs uh, between 2005 and six, and me and Brian started tracking them. You came over at one point. Yeah, and I played guitar. Sweet ass yeah, guitars, yeah. yeah. She's stuck inside. And why don't she just run I didn't know his name before that. It was definitely Jeff Lynn for but sure. You, so you you knew Tom Petty stuff. You knew the Wilburys. You knew, yeah. So this is something we were talking about. We got got into the weeds with you know who is Jeff Lynn produced. The thing that got me excited. You were like, okay, what was the first record that you ever put on that gave you chills that just kind of changed? So what was it for you? It was. God Gave Rock and Roll to You by Kiss. By Kiss. Okay, so I asked you that as though you hadn't just played me the song. Yeah. But uh, the, the listeners weren't there. It's a far way away from, like, what hit me when I was making music. But Je- it's, it's funny what hits you as a kid, you know, whatever it is, even yeah. though now you look at it and you think, uh, that's not really my wheelhouse anymore, but yeah, it uh, flipped a switch for you. There was, so, there was a lot going on in that song. Like, for a Kiss song, that's a lot of shit. <laughs> Key changes and 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 acoustic sections. But what we talked about was that probably had a lot to do with Bob Ezrin, the producer, right? right? So since then, 
what has really done it for you musically? What's you, so Jeff Lynne, a lot of his stuff, is that right? Yes. The two main ones in terms of what I loved as a listener that also infected me as an artist. Because like Pharrell Williams, I love anything that he's produced. He's so, he's so good. He's so consistent, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And the stuff that he was doing with Star Trek from the late 90s until NERD and the early Justin Timberlake stuff that he did. Uh-huh. Like, how how can you do so much with three chords, you prick? Like that's 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 the trick, right? Yeah. That's that's the ultimate. Yeah. But that isn't my wheelhouse if I was to say that I had one and I never wanted to. I always wanted to be someone who could do a bit of everything. I can relate. Blur, specifically Damon Albert has become another one of my all-time gurus. He's done a lot of interesting stuff. Like, he's he did the Gorillaz thing, but he also did more of a world music kind of yep. uh, fusion thing. Are you are you into that? I haven't really heard it. I read about it. He had a couple, he had Bally, or Mali music, uh-huh. uh, a solo album, which was also, his, his love of world music informed a lot of his separate projects. I really love when an artist who's known more as a really specific niche, you know, he's the guy who sang the woohoo song, song number two that everyone saw in all those commercials. And and then he goes on to do all this other interesting stuff that's nothing like that. And you go, oh yeah, the guy has a range. He's an artist. He's He's interested. And he always goes for something that is unusual and yet still pleasing in a special way that he delivers. So you share that aesthetic. Yeah. I love hearing that. that that's inspiring to me. It gives me hope. One of the things I thought would be interesting about us talking now is you've agreed to edit this podcast. And I thought it'd be really cool to give people a little kind of look behind the curtain at what gets done and how it gets done. And and before I even get into that, I wanted to ask you, why did you agree to do this? (laughs) Because what happened with me is you've been doing a podcast for a really long time and we'll get into that. But you had me on as a guest, and I remember leaving that interview thinking, God, what a mess. I can't express myself. Because at the time, I was thinking I wanted to start a podcast. I was leaving really dejected, just thinking, holy fuck, I've got to learn how to speak if I want to host a podcast because there's no way it's going to fly. And then you sent me the edit you had done, and I listened and I thought, wow, I sound articulate. Mm -hmm. This is really something. There's some magic there. And then now you've agreed to work that magic on this podcast that we're doing. So uh, tell me a bit about that decision, because I think I wouldn't be able to do this now. That is just too daunting for me to to take a three-hour conversation and cut it down to 45 minutes and do all the other things involved with that. It's just overwhelming. Well, there's the way I do it. And I'll leave that for a second to say that I would say yes to that because I'll follow you into hell as just a fan of your music. And so if if you're like, Todd, I need someone to help me move a piano from something. I'm like, I'll I'll fucking put in like a metaphor and, and drive my way with a smile <laughs> to do it. Um, and that's just like pure smoke up your butt. But I mean it too. And the second reason was I wanted to be involved in something. I wanted to do part of something that would have my name on it, but wasn't mine. Be part of a team. Yeah. Human connection is such a... <laughs> it's on the sidelines in our species these days with with screens and everything. To be a part of something, to be aware of being a part of something is is like you can't put a price on it. So you've been doing a podcast. You started your podcast 
the coffee house crowd. Is it 2008 that you started that or was that another podcast? I count them all as one, but I started a podcast called the iTod Lounge okay. in 2008 because that was in a time when I, in front of a capital letter word. Uh, that was the in vogue. Yeah. People just started talking about iPods sure. everywhere. I mean, it, the iPhone just came out in, in 07, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. So my name being Todd, rhyming with pod, was perfect. And then I threw lounge in there because my parents' basement was like loungy. You're way ahead of the curve. I remember in 2007-ish, I remember I was on tour with Mike Alviano and we got, we were listening to a lot of long-form interviews like CBCQ and all of that, but I never made the connection to listening to that kind of long-form convo as a podcast. It just didn't really exist or it was just starting out. So for you right. to already latch onto it and do your own, that's really forward thinking, man. That's That's something. It also worked against me. Things didn't have an audience on the internet then. It was too early. It was too early. It was too early. Wow. Because yeah. I, I look back at that and I think, holy shit, you've been doing it for a really, like, longer than a lot of the biggest podcasters in the world. Like, Marin's podcast only started in 2009, I think. And that's just putting it out there. Like, I've, I've been recording conversations since 97. Like, since wow. I my whole life I've been recording conversations. So how were you doing it in 97? What was the... Cassette tape. It wasn't for anything, though. It was just because that's something that I liked to do. I liked being in the room with a conversation that had already happened because I was socially always a solo artist. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you would just record, you would just invite a friend over and record your conversation? Like, what would you do? There would either be, like, candid hangout conversations that I would record, consensually, of course. <laughs> and then there would be, like, me and my cousin trying to do a pretend radio show. Wow. And it was all under this banner called Roundtable Discussion, RTD, you know that. And that, would you edit those too and then try and no, shape them? That was just recording, this like was documentation. Just documentation. That obsession with documentation, recording and listening back to voices. Right. That obsession, pre-editing. And then, of course, by the time I was doing the internet podcast thing, that's when I was in broadcasting school and on the radio and teaching myself how to edit. And that was a whole new ballgame. So it evolved into the Coffeehouse crowd and yes. then now to the Todd Donald show. So The Todd Donald show is right? just a change in name. Same same show, same, same feed. Same show, right. The, the episode that you're on is on the Todd Donald show. Right. So that's good for people to know. Uh, why the why the name change? That's a, that's a loaded gun. Is it? Well, whatever. I'm, I'm going to edit this anyway, but... <laughs> <laughs> you got to leave that in. Um, the, the name change had everything to do with my internal thought process. Okay. What keeps an artist, a musician, a podcast wizard artist like myself, <laughs> motivated through time? Not just now and not just this few months. That's a good longevity of motivation for a few months. Um, ebbs and flows of life, time passing, changes all the time. The muscle of the motivation, you know. It shifts. It shifts. The fact that I've been doing it for two years straight on the iTunes stream yeah. has been due to an agreement where whenever I get down on the idea of, oh, I, I wish it was loved on a mainstream level. I, okay. I wish everyone loved it. I remind myself, no, wait a minute. I started doing this because I wanted to do something that I was happy with. First, like an end in itself instead of a means to an end. It's not external yeah. reinforcement. It's internal reinforcement. 
internal versus external reinforcement are constantly battling. Because there's a part of me that's motivated to challenge the listener to do something inventive, to not be like anybody else that's motivated by external motivation. It can be a good fire under your ass in some ways. Right. And also the development and stuff like that are uh, reinforced internally. But if both are motivating you and some more than o- sometimes more than others, yeah, that's that's a tug of war that never fucking it, it ends. never never goes away, right? So as far as the name change goes, that was just aesthetic. That was just I don't like the name Coffeehouse Crowd anymore. You can package that in with the fact that at the time when I was making that change, what I felt I was putting out there internally was in line with the idea that its performance out there should have been something else. Oh, okay. And when I peel back the layers, I'm like, well, this isn't a show about coffee. It's partly a a marketing thing, essentially. Like, okay, can you talk a little bit about what you actually do in the back end of this podcast? Because I'm imagining that people out there listening to this now don't really know what's involved in editing a podcast. (laughs) When, When you're editing something... There's this fun, playful giddiness that you get from the fact that you're kicking stuff out. That's the game. The goal is to kick stuff out. It's great when you get into that ruthless headspace. So I certainly know this from editing music, yeah. that where you really are not attached to the footage at all, and you can just chop it and feel good right. about it, as opposed to feeling like you're losing part your limbs every, every time you chop something, right? Right. Can I get meta and mention that, for instance, there was the chat that you had with Dave Ambrat. It was long, but full of energy. It wasn't like you were just going for a three-hour marathon. Like, you guys were both in that. It probably felt like one hour to you, and then you're like, Oh, yeah, we were in. At the very end of it, you can hear us laughing and just thinking, Dude, that was three hours, and we we, it felt like, like you just finished saying, half an hour, but just because he's had such an interesting life, and you hear the the history of, uh, you know, the, the FARC and the, the yeah. organized crime in Colombia and all this stuff, and it's just riveting. And the enthusiasm does not wane throughout right. the entire thing. So there's it's harder to find the shit that needs to go. So that was hard for you. It was hard, <laughs> but in a good way. But that's what one of the reasons before I asked you, I tried to edit that episode, and I right. ran into that. I just went, I can't do this. I'm right. too close to it, first of all. And even if I wasn't too close to it, I don't know whether I could do it. And the thing that I looked for was any moment that you went to check the sound thing. Oh my God, five easy minutes in a row to get rid of. Right. Those were like that free glass of water when you're running a marathon. Yeah. What I'm looking for in terms of what stays and not just what I'm getting rid of too, the whole point is to have it feel like it happened that way. 100%. Having a conversation is completely different than listening to one. I love that you framed it that way. So there are certain things that are okay to do when you're editing. Yeah, you because part of it's entertainment, too. You want to engage people and, and keep them engaged. Yeah. So not to make people too conscious of, like, what they're doing when they're talking with their friends and being like, this would be shitty to listen to. But when we have conversations, how we judge the conversation in purely having it mm-hmm. is a lot more forgiving. So if I repeat myself, we're still sharing a moment together. The listener is asking for different things. They're asking for just the point once and then the next point and then the next question and then the next point. Yeah, agreed 100%. So uh, since you've been doing the podcast for this long and you're sort of a pioneer 
you know, when we put it into context like that, what's the criteria for, for inviting someone over? Hmm. Well, the guests that are like cream dreams <laughs> are people that I either know well enough to know what pedals to lift or people that on their own are doing something that I find entertaining and I just want to play with. But I have fun challenging myself to get the exact same results out of people who might not ever talk. So you look at it as a challenge. Yeah, I, I like to I like to consider myself a pressure player. Some of my best results are when I, I'm low energy and don't have access to my social facilities and words and metaphors. <laughs> social facilities. Yeah. I'm going to use that. Yeah. So uh, what are some of the challenges you've run into in doing doing this over the years? Getting it out there is... That's the big one. Yeah. Doing the conversations, that's an end in itself. Yeah. You love every minute of it. Getting it out there is a pain in the ass. It is. And you know what only makes it a painier in the assier thing? Constantly being reiterated to everyone who makes shit how, well, no, you got you can't just make the thing and expect people to know about it if you don't put it out there. You don't put yeah, it out there. Yeah. Well, guess what? I am of the cloth that loves having an entire entity of energy devoted to making the thing right. and making something awesome and yeah. making something unique, making something the way I want to and yeah. taking pride in evolving that over time till it becomes better and better and better. And what I do could be beloved or it could be shit. I have no idea. However, people who come from that cloth, there was an era for us where there was always that Billy Crystal-like motherfucker who was like, I got the sales yeah, sizzle. Yeah, 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 yeah. You just make the steak and I'll get you out there. Yeah, yeah. But everyone coming out of school who has that talent yeah. is either wanting to go into business solely for themselves and they will try making the art thing as their vehicle, but right. it's because they don't have to charge themselves. So it sounds like you need to partner or you're wanting to partner with someone who can do yeah. the marketing end of it. But on the belief in me and right. the promise of the potential money they could make when right. it makes money. It's, it's a tough sell because, you know, making money on a podcast is all the long shot of all long shots, right. just like making money on music. I mean, I can totally relate, Todd. I'm, I'm in so much the same boat in the sense that my entire creative life has essentially been based around the idea of do the work, try and make it great, kill yourself over the process, and you'll find an audience. Right. But what I've found in devoting all of my energy to just making the thing is no, like what you just finished saying, you have to, you have to either have someone else killing themselves to get it out to people, right. or it's just not going to connect. You, you have to have that, that aspect of it. And I've always struggled with that. It's always like finding your audience. I'm not passionate about finding an audience. I'm passionate about making things. And it hurts to not have one sometimes when you allow yourself yeah. to, to go to that place where that audience, that external validation would be nice. Would be nice or would inform the process in some way that would make it, make the thing better. Yeah. Right. And, and to have that back and forth. So I, I can really relate to that. And it's a frustration that affects me. But if we're, con if, if we're looking at what's the egg here, I can say I'm pissed off that they graduate and say, I got a price. You want my help getting your shit out there? 
joined the company that I just started upon graduation, uh-huh. my marketing media plane design right. firm. And I'm like, you haven't proven yourself. Like, you look like what you can do is awesome. Why don't you just work with me, please? So have uh, you talked to a lot of a lot of people? I talked to a bunch of people. Like but, social media specialists, that kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. But then that frustration is, it's a flame that's immediately watered out or suffocated by the fact that education is expensive as fuck. Oh, yeah. And you can't blame people for wanting to make a living exactly. doing what they're passionate about. I'm like, I get it. This world yeah, is yeah, getting yeah. scarier and scarier in terms of like what's going to happen to you when you graduate. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. So you went to you went to broadcast school. Yeah. So you went to Conestoga College. Is that right? Mm-hmm. How'd you find that whole thing? That's where I discovered that I didn't want to be in that industry. And funnily <laughs> enough, <laughs> that's an expensive way to find that out, right? And 10 years later, you know, are people buying radio stations or are they syndicating some of the same DJs all the way across the nation? But I mean, it's informed a lot of what you've done since, right? I'm sure it it, it gave you some tools for your music career and obviously for your podcast career. Mm -hmm. Being on FM radio when that was still king or queen of the airwaves, the experiences of just inviting people in. Let's let's see how how best friends we can become within this little bit yeah. of time. And so you you are referring to when you were a DJ, an on-air personality on CKWR. Is that right? Or was it CKMS? CJIQ. Oh, okay. So which one was that? That was Conestoga College. That was College. Conestoga College. Okay. Because I, I was just on social media and I saw a picture of you with Oxley mm. Workman, I think. So, okay. <laughs> in my first year of the program, they were asking if anyone in the class in our grade wanted to go on air, get mm-hmm. some practice, take one of our volunteer spots. I applied for the Friday 7 to 9 spot at the Conestoga College station, and the show was The British Invasion. Okay. They played a lot of British Invasion music, British rock, and stuff like that, and I played it too when I took over. However, given that all Canadian radio stations need to have CanCon on there, I thought, what better way to fulfill the CanCon need than by playing some of my friends in town that make music that's dope. So maybe I had some Rob Zabo CDs, and maybe I had some right. The Stars here records, and I started playing them in the mix. Oh, you know, here and there, this is an indie band. We'll play some more British rock for you later. And yeah. then I started inviting them into the studio. And in that year, I met Carrie Humphreys, being one of the most bodacious, on-air personalities, radio people. Yeah, she's a force, Show eh? promoters. The third year of being on the radio, which was my last FM year on the radio. Uh-huh. Carrie, hosting a show called The Rock Show, had to leave CKMS because they were having some trouble. I was doing Indie Invasion, Indie Rock Invasion Show as a... Acronym. The acronym spelt IRIS. Oh, I didn't realize that's how it came together. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right. And that was tied into you taking the broadcast program. So that's yeah. another reason why it sounds like that was, even though in some ways... It was a letdown in other ways. It's It made you who you are, right? Yeah, and it wasn't really a letdown. No. I don't I have no regrets about that. All right, let's shift gears here. On our way, walking, uh, walking to my place, because I went to meet you, uh, we were talking about you made a big shift in your life recently. You were working at a factory mm. for many years. And this is something you've talked about publicly. You posted on social media about your struggles as a factory worker 
I wonder if that's something you're comfortable talking about. Yeah. Because I certainly struggled with depression. And as I get older, it's been a real struggle to try and connect it to something concrete that I can do something about. Right? So for you to put it together in the way that I saw and the, the way we sort of briefly touched on and you made a, you know, you made a choice and I'll let you explain it. Yeah. I've, I've had moments where I was depressed for sure. Uh-huh. And it was like a lingering there for many months type of depression. And for the first time in my life, it wasn't hormone driven. You know what I mean? Like we all go through that shit, but I, I couldn't admit that it was depressing depression. I couldn't admit that it was depressing or depression because I've known a lot of people in my life who've legitimately struggled with it. And I didn't want to use that term. A lot of people suffer and and don't have a choice. And you, you felt like your depression wasn't on that level and didn't warrant that term. Is that is that what you mean? My depression was so privileged, brah. You know See, what I mean? That says so much about you to frame it that way. You're, right. you're basically saying I'm not worthy. I guess. You you just nailed me. <laughs> it's it's from experience. I can I uh yeah. yeah. I uh You have experience nailing me. That's I have good. experience nailing myself. <laughs> I I went way out, way off the rails there, but the point is that you're not able to acknowledge that it's depression even at that point until it's affecting other people. And so what was the catalyst? What made you want to make a change? At some point, feeling the burn of hating waking up every day and it feeling bleak about the future, I made a joke that has a limited audience about suicidal thoughts, meaning not the act, but the existential crisis of what, is there a point to this? I get that we're all impermanent insects in the grand scheme of things. Like, take a take a look at the lights on the the freeways outside of Toronto at night. Like, yeah. we're, we're just, like, little things. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, the, being a nut and bolt for a factory owner is, yeah. is like, ants looking at you as an ant and then... Yeah, that can be... Yeah, I can totally see how, how that'd be difficult day after day. And living in that questioning, you know, existential... Yeah. I certainly went through that. My dad died a few years ago, and I remember in the wake of that... You know, you have your grieving that has to do with family and emotional ties, but you also have grieving to do with existential, like, it's no longer just a theory. You right. know you're going to die. It happened. You know, whereas in your 20s, you kind of have this feeling like, I don't know, I might beat it. And now you're like, no, worms will eat my brain. And yeah. then you think, is anything worth doing? You get there pretty quick. And so I could totally see, you know, being at a factory and thinking those thoughts and living there and it must have taken a lot of courage to to pull yourself out of that and to make a profound life change. And not even I don't even know if it was the right change. Like when you get to where I am now, financially. But spiritually, I mean, you can't put a price on that. I mean, you well, can. Right. And I have. <laughs> but, but... You have spiritually. Yeah. How does that calculation work? My 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 worst day is still paradise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so good for you. It took a lot of courage. And, and something else... Since you made a social media post where you dealt with, you know, the whole thing from, you know, putting a word to it, saying depression and saying that you'd been going through it at the factory, there's a lot of gratitude to it as well. By the way, some people, as I mentioned in that post, are uh -huh. built 
for factory work. Some people don't feel depressed with it. Some people are fulfilled by it. And I, I have this axe to grind with the universe with the fact that, like, the idea of there being people who've never had, who are just wired in a way that they never require artistic or creative uh, fulfillment. Like, they just never have, uh, you know what I mean? I, I know what you mean exactly. I, I've often had this discussion, and I wonder about it. Maybe it's just a different means of expression, meaning someone who's an accountant expresses their creativity through solving problems that are not, quote-unquote, art-related, but it's just a different medium. I guess, Is, I guess so. Does that resonate? It does. But at the same time, art that, <laughs> that leaves so many starving, that's where you're cursed. If your art is finance, you got it fucking made in the shade. Hey, should I do this thing that fulfills me, makes me happy? But doesn't make any money. Yeah. That gets me too. This is something I've thought a lot about because of my own, you know, artistic pursuit over the years. That That's art by definition, isn't it? The idea that art is by definition useless. Because if it had a use, it wouldn't be art. Finance is more in that category where, you know, you're selling stuff, it's practical, I'm just not bent that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I can understand. I'm certainly not trying to make a moral judgment on one thing is better than the other. Uh, it's just, you know, when you take a, a step back and look at your life and think of all, all the things I'm interested in have no practical use. And yeah. I'm part of a lineage of people who gravitate towards that. Yeah. What does that mean? I don't have an answer. Well, put put the best music you've ever heard and the best paintings you've ever saw, and put it in a store with beds and food. It's way down the line of in, things in terms people of need. things you actually need. There's no yeah. question. People walk in asking, I need, for, I need a fucking oven. Like, I need to cook shit. But someone needs to convince you that but, this thing that you never heard of and never needed before. Back to the existential thing. Right. What's the point of living especially when we're evolved to the point where all of our needs, you know, in 2019, if you're living in the quote-unquote first world, you've got a roof over your head, you're getting food in your belly, your needs are met. So what's the point of living beyond that? Well, you need art because yeah. art is a support system for life. Yeah. It's not the other way around. So that's what I tell myself when I, <laughs> when I want to feel good about it. Yeah. So just in this conversation, you've said it a few times, you've talked about the universe. Is right. that something you believe fundamentally that the universe has some kind of plan for you or has some kind of, like there's some no. architecture to it? I'm open to, to any truth. I believe that if you want to put the word God on it, I read a book called the Bhagavad Gita in that anything that exists, anything that's matter and everything that isn't, and everything that isn't matter, is all God. And the will is in every little tiny... So we're all God, everything is God. Yeah, it's not even a word I use, but I know it's a word that other people might use to relate. Right, I understand, yeah. So, so that's closer to your kind Anything of that I've ever done or ever thought has all been me. And this, like, we don't know the brain... We don't know our own brain. We're just starting to to understand it. Yeah, just scratching the surface, right? It's so interesting. I, uh, there, there's so much more to f to find in terms of understanding your place in the world when you look inside, as opposed to out that or external validation or external yeah, understanding. Yeah, yeah. 
in hearing you talk about this, I, I get the feeling like if more purple, more purple, if more people were like you and were so thoughtful about every choice they make in every, even utterance, it's like you've got this editor on your shoulder constantly making sure that everything you say or every thought you have aligns with your kind of fundamental moral compass. It's, it's really something. Well, can, can I say that I like hearing our perceptions, like you're not wrong, but I'm hearing you say what you perceive me to be saying and doing and thinking. And the thing is, it is what I'm doing, <laughs> okay. but I don't have a thought of intent. It's, it's that, instinct. It's, uh, yeah. it's how you're wired. It's funny. Yeah. So that's why it's, it's useful to have people outside of you, uh, to hold up a mirror once in a while. Right. Not that it, I don't know that it changes anything you're doing, but I'm just yeah, explaining what I notice. There's this great understanding we can have a, of ourselves when we take ownership of everything we've ever said and done. When I um, think of people, and this is, this is where people are so important, mm -hmm. you know, you meet someone 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and who you are at that time makes the only impression you're going to make on that person. And you see them yesterday, and they don't want anything to do with you. Well, okay, I don't want to go back and change anything about the past, but I want to change your interpretation of who I am because that guy that's, made an impression on you. That's that's fixed. Yeah. Yeah, I felt that way so many times over my lifetime. Yeah. If you could only change that first impression, right? Right. Because this is another human being I'm not going to be able to connect with and experience human connection with because the, of the first impression you made yeah has that come up often for you in your life so many times because really I, i've been solitary a lot in my life too the way i've invited people in and made the connections i have have always been at arm's length oh so as part of something like recording a conversation early on as some kind of a project were you an only child only child only child and socially awkward for most of childhood, teenagehood. Because it's funny, as, as a kid, so I, I feel like I'm quite socially awkward as well, right. but I never would have, it didn't feel like that to me when I was younger. Because, you know, when you're younger, you have nothing to compare it to. You just think, this is how life is. This is how everyone feels like this, don't they? <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess. I was just flat out uncomfortable. Yeah. I was afraid of people. Always. It didn't, it didn't vary. Yeah. I had this understanding that my, <laughs> this false understanding that my presence was just not wanted. And no matter, my parents could not do enough to try to convince me otherwise. All the love in the world and all of the reminders of how handsome and talented I was were enough to dissuade me from feeling like a swamp creature around girls, around people I would try to be friends with anyway. Right. Even my own friends, I felt like an outsider from in any friend group I've ever been in. I, I can totally relate to that. But I've gotten more comfortable in my own skin, and I feel like there are upsides to whatever was the result of feeling well, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. It seems like people who are bent that way are also bent in an artistic way. It seems like yeah. that's you can't have one without the other. Yeah. So I guess I certainly take some comfort in that as it relates to myself, just the idea that, well, there's yeah. a social awkwardness and whatever price comes with that, but you also get the whole inner artistic life 
that goes along with it. So it's not such a bad deal. Yeah, well, <laughs> if, if you didn't have an awkward, tense childhood or something like that, I don't trust your art. <laughs> what the fuck do you have to say? Yeah, that's, that's the price of admission. <laughs> yeah. It's worked for me. The, every, everything that's worked for me has worked for me, and everything that hasn't worked for me has worked for me, even right. if it hasn't yet. And so y- you, you were saying a little earlier that you're now more comfortable in your mm. skin and less socially awkward. Did you do something deliberate to achieve that? Did you? Because yeah. I need some help. <laughs> the journey began a decade ago. I remember you went through a profound physical change. It was like, in my mind, sort of one year to the next, you were physically a different person. Right. There was an enormous satisfaction that came with seeing change happen. Yeah, it feels good when you can drive your own bus, when you can make big changes and, and stick with them and feel good about it. Yeah, and the way the physical changes affect the brain. When that's happening and you're in your mid-20s, say, when you're still in a process of going through life where things are still new. I'm just looking up at the sky going like, ah, I wish I could get some of that things are still new (laughs) juice back. Anyway, I'm I'm going too flowery, but the point is when I I was able to start feeling better and, and being like, what else can I do? So at a certain point, you you felt like okay, I'm I'm on the right path. Yes, I'm I'm healthier than I was. I'm eating right. I'm like exercising, and you f- started to feel better about yourself. And l- I guess less socially awkward went hand in hand with that internally. Ex- yeah, yeah, almost immediately. But how? And so that's kind of dangerous if you tie too much of that to your physical appearance and external re- reinforcement you get for that. Right, it's tricky. And that like my, my comfort socially never went away. It's just like. My physical maintenance has sort of gone down a, a slide out of function temporarily. But it was a puzzle, being social and training myself how to be someone that people wanted to stand around. There's a line in a Rob Zabo song. Rob Zabo? I haven't yeah. heard of him. He's a genius. He wrote this song called Beautiful. You ask me how I am. Just keep it to 20 words or less. We've talked about this before. You and I, when we were talking about getting into the the podcast, this is something that really resonates with me, the idea that I'm the kind of person who's likely to corner someone in a social situation without realizing it, just because the kinds of things that are interesting to me are in-depth, one-on-one conversations. And once I start feeling some momentum going in that direction, I'll just start to rev up and start to, often if, you know, you're at a, I don't know, a dinner party or you're out at a bar and you yeah. you start going in that direction, some people who aren't bent that way will just start to, you know, deer in the headlights kind of get me out of here. And I'm, I'm getting excited. I'm like, oh, we're having a real conversation. We're getting into <laughs> shit here, yeah. right? And you you said something along those lines to me. Like you're, you're saying, uh, maybe I should let you say it. I had, I had to learn social cues. I started recording with Brian in the fall of 2006. This is okay? Brian Alexanian, Brian a producer Alexanian. based out of Kitchener, yeah. great friend of both of ours. Wonderful, funny person, wonderful sound guy. Fantastic, yeah. And he introduced me to a place called the Duke of Wellington. These musicians and I would congregate from time to time. And right, This is uh, uh, an institution yes. in Waterloo. It wasn't a group of friends. Right. It was a group of people who were affectionately appreciative of each other's musical thing. Maybe they were friends, but I was regularly in a social situation with them, failing to communicate with or become friends with in any way because of whatever I was doing at the time that I didn't realize was not cool 
to socialize with. Wow. So you you actually calculated, I've got to make some changes. This is what they're going to be. Go. That that was the setting that I was in for a few years wow. during the time leading up to and including when I made the physical shift, working out, exercise, and dieting. Right, right, right. Putting the puzzle together of how do I become someone who you want to be around socially or that you don't want to escape socially. That discussion I had with you was part of why I wanted to start the podcast. Just it, it kind of set a switch off in my head where I thought to myself, well, I'm the kind of guy who really needs I have some kind of deep-seated need to have these kinds of conversations. And if I don't have them in a controlled situation like this podcast, I'm going to be <laughs> forcing people into them on the, you know, not on the street, but in, in the yeah. situation you're describing in the Duke or wherever, out at a bar. Right. Interesting. <laughs> this is what you signed up for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well just, I've thought about this kind of thing a lot. And one of the places I get to is introvert, extrovert. Just straight up, yeah, so we're introverts. Extroverts just see the world through a different lens and and have different needs. And, uh, yeah, I don't have that much more to say about it. I mean, right. I do, but I'm going to stop myself. Well, we've had a conversation that, that put focus on those words. Right. Introvert, extrovert. I think I might be a bit of both. So. Everyone has different parts of themselves that yeah. have different needs. Like you recharge alone, but you discharge around people. <laughs> well expressed. I guess. So let's talk about the future a little bit. Okay. Where do you see the future of your podcast? Um, it's an end in itself. Is that the answer? Just doing it is, is enough? Thinking through where it's going to go or just you hesitated long enough that I'm thinking... Wow, you haven't thought about this at all. You're not doing it with a future in mind. Well, I might go there in my mind. I don't spend enough time there to form a shape. Well, that says so much just right there. So do you think about the future of podcasting? Do you think about what's this going to look like? Because the, the reason I come to that is I admire that you were so ahead of the curve and that you saw the potential back in 2008 before any of it was really a thing. And now I've been wanting to do a podcast since... 2007, but I didn't see how it would play out in the, the delivery system of the podcast. I thought there had to be a video component. So I remember yeah. playing around with, you know, iPhone tripods and thinking, okay, how will you shoot each person? And I thought, you know, the way the future is going to go, people are going to want to see video with everything. They're not just going to want to listen to audio, right? And that that stopped me. And I, so I went through all these different iterations right. in my head. And in 2014, I was part of Pat Lackenbauer's, the early stages of his podcast, uh, Moving Air, and I helped him with the theme and la, 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 and we were going to do something, but I backed out of that. And I just kicked myself for not having started it earlier. So I kind of feel like, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I yeah. feel like you had some vision around podcasting and maybe you have some vision around where it's going. Part of me takes pride in the idea that that's what I did. But back then it was on YouTube. So I I remember doing that and I had Pat Lackenbauer on it and I had Danny Michelle on it. And mm -hmm. then a few years later, he did this way, way, way better YouTube thing called Dan Space Van, which is like one of the main reasons I took everything I ever did off YouTube and added it to the audio vault. People were already doing stuff. With a video component. That had a purpose of being watched. 
That yeah. was good. And it so was like that's that's one of the things that got me that stopped me initially in doing the video thing because I thought I'm not going to be good on video. And then now I'm so heartened about the idea that podcasts are such a thing and audio alone is enough for people and myself definitely I find I don't watch like video will turn me off of a conversation. I want I just want the audio. I yeah. just want the thoughts. I want the meat. Yeah, you can't you can't drive and watch YouTube. Right. It doesn't work. And to me, I engage with it in a different way. I find when I'm watching someone, something different is happening to me and it's actually less intimate in some way. And it probably right. says a lot about me. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, there's one thing I'm looking at my notes and one thing I want to say publicly is I want to thank you for taking this on, for taking on the, in my mind, monumental task of editing this podcast and, you know, putting your weight behind that because, there's no way in hell I could do it without you doing that. So thank right. you for that, Todd. You're welcome. Fantastic. That's, that's me trying to be an extrovert. <laughs> I got so much more to say than you're welcome, but like that's all that's necessary, and I know that. Fantastic. Well, yeah, thanks so much for people listening. The Todd Donald Show, which has been going on in some way, shape, or form since 2008, the pioneer of podcasting, Todd Donald. So wherever you get your podcasts, Thanks so much for doing this, Todd. Thanks for having me, Rob. All right. What do you think of that? Todd Donald, a little look behind the curtain at And Sometimes Why. Fantastic. Thanks so much for listening. Episode number seven. Thanks to everyone who's been leaving ratings on iTunes, Apple Music. It's super helpful. Reviews, ratings, Spotify sharing is super helpful right to your Insta feed or Facebook feed. Also, there's a Spotify playlist that's in the show notes that will have all the songs we played in this episode in their entirety. I hope you have a good day. Be kind to each other out in the world, no matter what you're doing, whether you're listening on the treadmill or I hope you have a good commute if that's when you're listening or having a glass of wine at home before dinner, during dinner, after dinner. Thanks for giving a shit. Talk to you next Wednesday. And Sometimes Why is brought to you by Rob Sabo. Conversations are edited by Todd Donald. Thank you.